to be able to plant roots and uh, dig in and grow and go uh, with you all. Uh, If you have your Bible, I would like to invite you to grab it, open it to Jeremiah, Old Testament book, Jeremiah chapter 18. We are working our way through a short series in a very long book called An Anchor in the Chaos, nine selected texts out of Jeremiah that will help us to find an anchor. I appreciate that last Sunday as I took vacation, uh, my friend uh, Dave Lunsford came and spoke to you from the chapter right before this, Jeremiah chapter 17. It's an important passage, the heart Jeremiah prophesied, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I told Dave, I said, Dave, this is a very significant passage of scripture because it's God's way of lifting the hood and examining the engine, pulling back the curtain and saying, what is the human heart like? And the answer is, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. The heart is desperately wicked. We live in a culture today where so many people say, well, I just want to follow my heart. I want to do what my heart wants. And and, and we as people of faith want to say, no, don't do that. Because you can't trust your heart. Amen? The heart is desperately wicked. Thank God that better than the heart, we know the one who made the heart. And that's where we ought to look for assurance. Uh, uh, It has already been mentioned. I'm so excited. Next Sunday, uh, Jeremiah Puckett uh, will candidate for youth pastor title here at our church. He'll preach in the morning, business meeting at night, and uh, fellowship time. And I just hope that you'll come and, and be a part of a real celebration with this young couple, Jeremiah and Katie, uh, coming on staff and seeing. They, they've been doing the work for almost two years as a ministry director, but we are, uh, the elders have recommended that we present him to the church family for your consideration as licensure to the pastorate. And it's something that we take seriously here. We don't just do that whimsically or flippantly, um, and we believe that it is time for us to do that. Uh, Also, tonight is, and it was already mentioned as well, we have a membership workshop. I just want to cast out my own invitation. If you're newer to our church and and you'd be willing to come and learn a little bit about us, we meet in here tonight at 5 o'clock to 7.30. We have childcare. We have a light dinner uh, ready for you. And if you're open to coming, just let me know because I'm inviting you. We'd love to have you join with us. We have several who are already slated to come, but it would be good to have more. And if you're open to considering that, I I, uh, give you my invitation as well. And and before I start to preach, uh, many of you like me, did you notice that commercial was closed this morning? And I don't know exactly what happened, but I know that the Salem PD doesn't shut down commercial in both ways for anything minor, more than likely the loss of a life. And uh, I think we should pray for whomever... um, that emergency was about. Would you pray with me? Father, we noticed this morning coming to church that there's been an accident or an incident. We don't know the details, but we know that it definitely seems quite serious. And we pray your grace on the individuals involved, their family and friends, Lord, that will certainly... um, They'll have this day disrupted and their lives changed in some ways. And we ask, God, that you would minister 
uh, grace and help to those who need it, and that you would be sovereign over whatever it is that's happened this morning. It's in the name of your son, I pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 18, I've titled this message, God's Do-Over, and I'd like to invite you to read with me in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. You follow along in your Bible as I read aloud. Jeremiah 18, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. These verses introduce this subject matter that actually will carry beyond what I'm going to cover today. It's all the way through chapter 18. Chapter 19 picks up the theme of pottery. And even in chapter 20, some of the disaster that will come is connected. I told you in the beginning that the book of Jeremiah is hard because almost at a two-to-one ratio, it's, it's bleak and judgment and, and bad things happening. And yet, on this particular day, God takes Jeremiah on a field trip. And that field trip was to the potter's workshop. And what does he see? He sees a potter at the wheel uh, working a, a lump of clay. Uh, the, the potter's wheel in this day would have very likely been a large circular disc of stone at the bottom. And on top of it, a second disc so that the potter could sit there and with his feet turn the lower wheel so that the upper wheel would then spin and he would work the clay with his hands. Jeremiah sees the potter at the wheel and he notes that when the pot doesn't seem to be coming out right, there's a problem in the molding process that the potter smashes the clay into a ball down onto the wheel and he starts all over again. And the potter's wheel is a lesson in the sovereignty of God whereby God chooses to begin again with his creation, which, by the way, includes you and me. We are clay in the potter's hand. God is the potter. God is in the pottery business, shaping our lives to serve his purposes, and at times, making us start all over again as he shapes our lives into a new pot. I have given you an outline you can follow along if you wish to as we look at the potter and the clay and God's beginning again, God's do-over. Write this down. The first principle that I see is that God alone chooses what he wants to make of our lives. I see this in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18. 
Again, Jeremiah continues in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The teaching point of this passage can be stated very simply, and it is this. God can do whatever he wants to do with you. Somebody say, amen. God can do whatever he wants with your life and with my life. Why? Because that is what it means for him to be God. Because God is God, he's free to do whatever he pleases. We, like clay in his hands, rest all power and rule and control and authority and government and kingdom and dominion, all of it in the capable and able hands of God. Not one thing happens in this world, but not that it first passes through the hand of God. God raises up and God smashes down. God uses in one way, and God will use in another way. All of it, singularly, his prerogative, that's what it means for him to be God. Many people have asked me, Pastor Tim, our church is planning to go to Israel after the first of the year, and there's this thing happening over there. I'm like, yeah, I've seen the news. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, there's calamity that has befallen Israel. Because I have been there many times, because I lived there for six months in college, I have had generally this response. I, I just think, we just wait and watch and see. Israel has never as a nation existed in a time when life was free and easy for them. If there's any people on the face of the planet who know what it is to deal with constant adversity, with the ever-present threat of attack, with being surrounded by a whole host of 14 Arab nations, most of whom would love nothing more than to annihilate and wipe out the Jewish state and shove them into the Mediterranean, and that has been their perpetual existence throughout all time, I have no lack of confidence that God knows what he's doing over there. And I also, because of my understanding of God's word, believe that there are, there are every promise made to the nation of Israel will literally be fulfilled in the future, that they will unquestionably continue as a nation, that God will preserve them and sustain them. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but that's my understanding of things. Uh, will our church get to travel to the Holy Land at the end of February? Maybe, maybe not. We just don't know. But this we do know, God's in control. He's got this. That is what being God entails. He is sovereign. He's in control over all things in this world. The question of you and I as clay in the potter's hands probably has more to do with this. Does God have your permission to do as he chooses with you? Christian, does God 
have your approval to do as he wishes with your life, with your loved ones, with your vocation, with your financial life, with your relational well-being, with your 401k. Can God be God for you? Or perhaps probably a better doctrinal question is, is this. Does God need your permission to do as he chooses with you? Answer, <laughs> nope, because he's God. And it goes hand in hand with who he is. Listen, we often, church, make the mistake of presuming that our desires and our preferences and our wishes ought to be considered by the Lord when it comes to his decision-making on how he uses us. We, we get this wrong all the time. Lord, I'll serve you anywhere as long as you fill in the blank. As long as I have running water, I'll serve you anywhere. As long as I have electricity, as long as where I live, they deliver pizza. <laughs> then I'll serve you there. As long as I don't have to work with children, Lord, because you know that my patience is worn thin and I'm too old. As long as I don't have to work with teenagers because I don't understand them and they drive me bananas. As long as I don't have to work with people who, what? People who can't read because I don't know how to communicate with someone uh, apart from the written language. As long as I don't have to serve those who have questionable hygiene. As long as I don't have to help those who struggle with addictions or trauma or sexual sin in their background. As long as those things happen, God, you have my permission, my freedom to do what you will with me. And I'm just here to tell you, that's stupid. That's just not how the world works. It, it made me laugh some many years ago. Our church was one of, one of the first churches in town that started a ministry to work with people with addictions. And for 15 years, we had a weekly uh, a gathering, growth group, ministry of helping people who struggled with addictions. And as we gathered that first group, in a way it was weird because I've never been drunk and I've never been high and I've never done all those things. And like, but I'm the pastor and I'm excited about this ministry, so I'm involved with these people. But I had a whole lot of learning to do about what does it mean to work with people who have had life-controlling sin issues in their past and they're struggling with that stuff. And as we worked with people who struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction and relational complications and codependency and food issues, and, and we began to talk about all the variety of life-controlling sins that there are, and this awesome team of people came together out of this church who knew something of that in their background. And the thing, I, I'll never forget the team meeting that shocked me was are we going to have a group for people who have sexual violations and sexual addictions? And it, I learned something. In the realm of addictions, all addictions are A-OK -okay except that one. We don't want those people, in, not in my church, not in my ministry. And I had to, as the pastor, say, hey, hey, hey time out. There's no sin that makes anyone unusable by the hand of God. Amen? So stop that. You don't get to play that card here. 
I, I thank God that, that the scriptures make it clear that whatever the life-controlling sin issues, I love it when Paul says, and such were some of you after he ran through his laundry list of bad behavior, and such were some of you, but you have been called and you have been chosen and you have been redeemed. And we all have lots of things that we used to be, amen? But that doesn't mean that's who you are. You can change and you can grow. So we had to work through that kind of roadblock in our thinking that you know, any kind of life-controlling sin is fine except maybe one to say, no, the grace of God can choose to work with people whomever. Now listen, it is almost certainly true that you have had certain uh, deal breakers, certain non-negotiables when it comes, for example, to your vocation. Uh, perhaps some of your deal breakers are, I won't accept a job where I have to work on weekends. That's just not something I'm able to do right now. Or maybe you said, I won't work a job that's going to expect more than 55 hours a week from me. Or I won't work a job that doesn't pay a fair and livable wage. By the way, if those were my standards, I never would have become a pastor, all right? All of them violated frequently. What are some non-negotiables that you have had in your life? Like, I, I will do whatever, but I'm not going to do this. Think about that with me. Where, where are your deal breakers? Because I believe that this chapter is addressing the fact that in our work for the Lord, we need to be reminded that God is under no obligation to honor your boundaries, whatever they are. God can do with you as he alone chooses. In this way, Serving the Lord is more like being in the military than serving in the marketplace. You enlist in the military. They tell you what to wear, how short your hair will be, what you eat, what time you get up, when you go to sleep, and where you will be sent. And like a good soldier, you're taught to respond to every order. What do they respond? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hoorah. Even if you end up in God's service, serving in Awana, or living in a rural setting, or investing in people that you have to work to love, even at a place that does not deliver pizza, we ought to have this understanding that God alone chooses what to do with us. And there's something powerful that happens when you and I submit to God's sovereignty over our lives. When we stop complaining about what God asks or assigns us to do. When we learn to settle in and choose to bloom where we're planted and to love those whom we have to remind ourselves that God expects us to love. I'm here to tell you, church, contentment is a beautiful thing. It's satisfying and noble and worthwhile. And the alternate to contentment can be seen in Isaiah 45 in your notes. Look at the verse I put in your notes. 
from the New Living Translation. Again, another prophet in the pottery barn says this, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? We're being warned, don't take that tone with God. We, we shall not go there and my challenge to you this morning, church, is this. Don't despise what God has given. Are you satisfied with what and where God has called you? If you are, good. Don't despise God's choice for you. Or are you struggling to accept what God has given you as your place or your station in life right now? Or if you're being honest, might you say that you're not content with what he's given you to do or with who you are? Maybe this is the house that you will go home to today. Or it's the car that you have, if you have one. Maybe it's your appearance, the style of your hair, the shape of your face, the body that you have. Are you content with what God has assigned you? Maybe it's even your spouse. No, wait, don't, don't go there, okay? That's like a whole other sermon topic for another time. But I want you to realize something, that there is this grand promise of God. It's beautifully seen in this passage that's really dealing with money, but it, it overlaps. And Paul wrote to Timothy and said, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And though this is written concerning material possessions, I want to tell you, I think this fits your station in life too. Are you content with what God has assigned to you? Because there is a powerful thing. Godliness with contentment is what, church? It's great gain. And we can gain much in life if we will accept what God has given. Don't despise what God has given. Don't despise the station in life that God has assigned to you. Don't despise your disability or your physical appearance, or your physical limitations. Accept that God alone chooses what to make of your life and strive for contentment in all that God assigns you to. This is the word of the Lord. The second thing I see in this passage, you can write this down, is that prosperity or disaster result from our behaviors. Like so often in this book, Jeremiah's message is about judgment. The, the pot in the potter's hands on the potter's wheel is not an image that's intended to be comforting. 
like so often will occur with modern art, it's meant to be disturbing. And Jeremiah's message about clay in the hands of the potter could just as easily be called clay in the hands of an angry potter. Because if God can do whatever he wants, if, that what it, if that's what it means for him to be God, that God has the right to destroy you and me for our sinfulness. God is the one who brought you into the world and he can take you out of the world. And until you recognize this, you have not fully reckoned yourself with the sovereignty of God. And the reason that God took Jeremiah down to the potter's house was he wanted to warn the nation of Israel about the wrath of God. And he began with the ultimate reason for the rise and the fall of the nations. Look with me in verses 7 and following. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Verse 9 and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Jeremiah is now being reminded of a longstanding principle of God's world economy, and that is the fact that God is fair and only God is in a position to make judgments regarding that. God is the potter and he treats the clay as one that he loves. He is patient and willing because of that patience to relent of promised punishments or to relent of promised rewards based on the actions of his people of clay. This is nothing new. This, in fact, is the, the very covenant that was established with the nation of Israel. This is the Abrahamic covenant being lived out before us. This is the Mosaic covenant in its final articulation. I put in your notes the passage from the end of the book of, Deuter of Deuteronomy where Moses is repeating the law to the nation and he reaffirms this principle. He says, now listen, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and death disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and you're drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I will warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. God's overarching principle of his work with mankind is this. Obey me and good things will happen. Disobey me and bad things will happen. This is the principle upon which every good parent bases discipline with their kids, right? 
How many of us learned as youngsters, obedience, good things happen, disobedience, bad things happen? How many of us learned that lesson when we were young? Thank God for moms and dads who taught their kids God's eternal principle on this. Obedience matters. This is the system of justice upon which our nation is built. If you obey society's rules and laws, good things will happen. And if you disobey them, bad things will happen. And this is a principle of God's heart that he exhibits in his relationship with mankind. And here in Jeremiah 18, God is giving this message to the nation of Israel. He's giving this message to Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah. And after setting forth his general principles, which is if you obey, I'll do good things. And if you disobey, I'll do bad things. And if you were doing good things and you change your course, I'll change my mind. And that in no way impugns God's character. God has the right to be God and to do as he chooses with us, including blessing or cursing prosperity or disaster based on our behaviors. After setting this general principle for ruling the nations, in verse 11, God is going to apply this to his chosen people. Verse 11, now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. God is warning his disobedient sons and daughters. Amend your ways. It's time to change. If you'll amend, good things will happen. Prosperity will come your way. If you continue to disobey and violate my principles, then disaster is coming. The judgment from God. The people of God in this field trip to the pottery workshop are being shown that they are like the clay on the potter's wheel. And, and they as a people are in the potter's hands. And what was their response on this day to the warning that comes? Really, it's the entire rest of the chapter, and I'm not going to cover all of it, but I want to pick up at verse 12. Here's their response. But they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? They told God, we don't care what you say. Go away. We're going to do what we're going to do. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? Answer, no. 15, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into side roads, not in the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever forever. 
Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head like the east wind. I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face in the day of their calamity. How bad does it have to be for God to turn his back on you? I'm here to tell you that we as people and this group of people as a nation because of a choice of disobedience, because of a choice to tell God, shut up. We don't want to hear you anymore. We're going to do what we're going to do. And God says, now, judgment. And you'll see my back, not my face. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. So often we think that preaching about judgment, that's not good sermon fodder. A a good sermon makes us feel good, warms our hearts, makes us smile and laugh. And I'm just here to tell you, you can't preach Jeremiah without encountering judgment over and over and over again. And I'm here to tell you, it goes like this. You don't know what it is to be found if you don't know what it is to be lost. And you have to understand that it's in our depravity and our sinfulness and our walking away from God that we earn for him, for ourselves, his judgment. Yes, God will turn his back on you if you continuously push him away and reject him. Warren Wearsby wrote in his book, The Strategy of Satan, he said, Satan's design in your life is to win you over or to wipe you out. And we think, well, God will always be there to intervene, but will he? Or can you and I come to a place of rebellion and rejection where God says, enough, I'm done. These are questions that we must wrestle with as we read the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 18 records the prophet's request really starting at verse 18 down to the end. And I don't want to read it all, but look at the last verse with me. Look at verse 23. Jeremiah says, Yet you, O Lord, know all their plottings to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. This was Jeremiah's prayer. And the question is, how bad does it have to be when the prophet prays to God? God, deal with them in the time of your anger. Give them justice, Lord. No more patience, no more grace. Deal with them justly. It's a hard truth. And because of that, Jeremiah chapter 18 should strike fear in the heart of every human being. Because at the end of the day, folks, you and I are only a lump of clay spinning and spinning and spinning on the potter's wheel. And and yet, before God turns his back forever, before he deals with them in the time of anger, he gives them yet one more opportunity 
to turn back to him. Because the principle of God's harsh judgment is this, that if we will, we will repent and change and confess and obey, God says, I am fully willing to relent and to give you prosperity and that which is good I put uh, in your notes this verse from Psalm 103. And it is this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And by the way, dust when you add water to it, is how clay is made. And it's how we end up on the potter's wheel. The main reason that God took Jeremiah down to the potter's house was to warn about judgment that was coming. But the picture of the potter and the clay also gives us comfort because if God is the potter, he can make something out of the most unpromising blobs of clay. And this is also in tribute of his sovereignty. Uh, biblical scholar Eugene Peterson writes this, no one has ever been able to make a clay pot that is just a clay pot. Every pot is also an art form Pottery is always changing its shape as potters find new proportions, different ways to shape the pots in pleasing combinations of curves. There is no pottery that, besides being useful, does not also show evidence of beauty. Pottery is artistically shaped and designed, painted and glazed, fired. It is one of the most functional items in life. It is also one of the most beautiful. It is useful and beautiful, functionally necessary and artistically elegant at one and the same time with no thought that the two elements could be separated. It, it takes an artist to make a pot that is beautiful as well as useful. And the kind of potter that Jeremiah watched this day in the workshop, one who refused to give up on his work, and when there was a flaw in the clay, he didn't throw it away. He just smashed it flat and shaped it into something else. F.B. Meyer calls that pot a memorial of the potter's patience and long-suffering of his careful use of material and his power of repairing loss and making something out of failure and disappointment. I love that description. The same thing could be said of God's people, Israel. Though for a time they were crushed as Jeremiah prophesied, God remade them into a beautiful kingdom. And the same could also be said of every Christian. We come into this world like so many clay pots. Our lives are pitted with blemishes and impurities. We aren't useful or beautiful. But as clay goes, we are not easy to work with. We need to be created all over again, which is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of someone who trusts in Christ. God makes something beautiful. And I just want to ask you this morning, Christian, are you happy with the way that God is shaping your life? Because God often makes something out of us that we don't really have in mind. We have disappointments in love. There are diseases in our bodies. We have discouragement 
in work. We have times of desperation in our families. And for one reason or another, we're often unhappy with the way that life is progressing. And very likely, if you were behind the potter's wheel, you would make yourself very differently from the way that God is. And the question is, would you choose then to unseat God as the potter of your life and to make yourself? I would remind you of this. You are not the potter. You are only clay. And the proper thing for the clay to do is to trust the potter and yield to his skillful hands. A few weeks back when I began this series, I, I, I told you about Ulrich Zwingli, uh, who was the progenitor of the Reformation in Switzerland. And Zwingli once wrote to a friend and he said, I beseech Christ for this one thing only, that he will enable me to endure all things courageously and that he breaks me as a potter's vessel or makes me strong as it pleases him. Church, are you willing to trust God as the potter? Do you believe that God knows best and designs best and shapes best and, and fashions best? If you've given your heart to God, you can trust him to transform you into something useful and beautiful. If that seems hard to believe, it's because he's not even close to being finished with you yet. He's taking the time to work the parts of your life that are still lumpy and off-centered. And some parts he may need to smash down and raise up all over again. And the question is, will you trust him, really trust him to do what is best? In the early years of the 20th century, Adelaide Potter wrote a hymn for the church about being willing clay the kind of clay that will stay on the wheel in the potter's hands. You know this song. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Another verse of that hymn. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning, we need an anchor in the chaos. And on this passage that we have studied, you warned the nation of Israel of judgment that would come. And you used this image, this metaphor of clay on the potter's wheel. And by application today, Lord, we sit in this room as lumps of clay all over this auditorium lives that have been shaped and brought, and you've given us certain things. You've given us relationships and family. You've given us problems. You've given us challenges. We have jobs, many of us, houses, cars. All of it 
because you are God and you are shaping and using us. And I pray this morning for the one who is here who has really struggled to accept the shape that you're making them. With your heads bowed as we continue in prayer, God is making you. And I ask you this morning, are you willingly accepting the station in life that God has given you? Or have you been begrudging him of his decisions? Maybe you don't like the challenges you have. Maybe you don't like the disability that you live with or the relational situation you are in life. And I would say to you, don't despise what God has given. And if that's you, I would urge you to pray this morning in the quietness of your heart to him, Lord, I apologize for begrudging your giving to me what you have. And I want to change my attitude. And I want to receive with thankfulness that which you have allowed to come into my life right now. If that's you, pray that prayer. And if you're here and God's spirit has said to you this morning, what you need is you need to come into a relationship with me then I would invite you this morning to pray and to put your faith in Christ, to recognize that God has made you, loved you, offered his son for you, who died on the cross to pay for your sin, who rose again. God is offering you love and grace and purpose, but he will not force himself. He will always let you decide. I wonder if it's your moment today. If God's spirit is prompting you, would you just, in the quietness of your heart, pray along with me this prayer to begin your relationship with God. Say to him, Father in heaven, I thank you that you brought me here today and that by your spirit, you're prompting me to know that I need you in my life. Lord, I've not been particularly content. I've been chasing things. I've been despising what you've given, and I want that to be my story no longer. And so, Lord, as best I know how, this morning, I'm coming to you to say that I believe in you. I'm trusting in Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe that he rose again on the third day to prove victory over sin and death and to prove he himself was God. And I'm asking you, Lord, will you come into my life and forgive me of my sinfulness? And will you help me turn and live differently from this point on to live more for you? Lord, keep shaping me so that my life would be both beautiful and useful unto you. It's in the name of your son, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, that's how we start our walk with God. This is where it begins, and I hope that if you did that, you'll share that with me. Best thing would be to take a response card from the seat back in front of you and mark it that says, I'm committing my life to Christ. You can drop that in one of the offering boxes. Let's uh, close, Vance, in worship, please.